Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I guess that many of us know very little uh, about Selina, Countess of Huntington. We know that she played a role, a great role in the 18th century in that great awakening and uh, she has much to teach us and we have much to learn from her. Whereas she may be a stranger to us, I think our speaker tonight is certainly no stranger, and that's uh, George Curry, who is the vicar of this church and who has been our host for many, many years for the autumn lectures and a great supporter of the Christian Jew, on the Council of the Christian Jew too. And so, George, it's a great pleasure that we've come here tonight to sit at your feet and to learn more, <laughs> to learn more of Selina Countess of Huntington. I certainly wouldn't want to sit at my feet, Mr. <laughs> Chair. But, um, well, I've been living with Selina for uh, the last uh, <laughs> few weeks, as my wife knows, uh, uh, only too well. Uh, sometimes we've shared a bed as I've um, been reading all about her. And I'm quite convinced that there's some amongst us who could give a far better address on this important subject than I possibly can. But I'll endeavour to launch off uh, into introducing you to this remarkable woman. There's no question about it. She was a remarkable woman. And I think we must pray most earnestly that God would raise up such remarkable people today. 
We need them urgently. Now what I hope will happen is that we shall have cause to see as we consider the life and witness of Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, that from 1746 until her death in 1791, she was used by God to further a remarkable Christian witness, especially among the nobility of the British Isles. We say from 1746, not because that was the year of her conversion, it was not, She came to faith in 1739. But 1746 was the year of her husband's death, an event that marks a watershed in her life. It was on the 13th of October 1746 that Selina's beloved husband Theophilus died. For the best part of the next 45 years, she would never speak of him without deep and obvious emotion. Although a capable and competent woman, she was, like many wives, dependent upon her husband's affection and presence. Not surprisingly, the weeks that followed his burial in St. Helen's Church, Ashby de la Jouche, were spent, as she said to her friend Lady Hartford, in a little retreat close by his grave. But within months, in 1747, She was to tell Philip Doddridge in a letter dated the 23rd of February, I dread slack hands in the vineyard. We must all up and be doing. And so it was, after a period of relative seclusion, Selina once more gave herself to do all she could for her Redeemer and his kingdom. She was 39 years old when widowed and frequently throughout her life struggled with ill health. Yet at this point in her life, although she would not have recognized it at the time, she stood on the threshold of the outstanding work to which God called her. Bishop J.C. Ryle many years later described her as the mainspring of the 18th century Revival. Whilst King George III is reputed to have said to Charles Wesley's son, It is my judgment, Mr. Wesley, that your uncle and your father and George Whitfield and the Countess of Huntingdon have done more to promote true religion in this country than all the dignified clergy put together who are so apt to despise their labours. There are three matters we want to endeavour to explore. First, we shall consider Selina's faith. Secondly, we shall look at Selina's works. And thirdly, albeit very briefly, we shall look at Selina's legacy. So first, let's consider her faith. Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntingdon, was the second of three daughters born to Washington and Mary Shirley. The date of her birth, according to the Gregorian calendar, was the 24th of August, 1707. And the place at which she was born was Astwell Manor, near Brackley, in Northamptonshire. Washington, whose aristocratic and wealthy family could trace its lineage back to Saxon times, 
was left little by his father except the title, the second Earl of Ferris. Financial pressures and disputes dogged the family during Selina's troubled childhood and probably contributed to the breakup of her parents' marriage when she was six years old. Elizabeth and Selina, the older of the three girls, remained with their father in Britain, whilst Mary, the youngest, stayed with their mother, and their mother spent most of her remaining days in France and Spain. However, the main reason why Selina's parents separated was probably her father's constant marital unfaithfulness. Little is known of Selina's childhood years, but one of her chaplains, Thomas, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, is it Howis, provides anecdotal evidence which points to her being a sensitive and serious-minded person. There is evidence of an interest in matters spiritual from a tender age. As a young girl, for example, she would often find a secluded place where she would secretly tell God all her troubles. J.H. Mayer, in a sermon preached to mark her funeral, states that as a child she was uncommonly desirous of attending funeral solemnities, particularly those of children. Howis records that one such funeral, which she happened to observe at the age of nine, had a profound effect upon her. She visited the child's grave on a number of occasions, where she prayed earnestly that when her time to die came, God would deliver her from her fears and grant her a happy departure. Little is known of Selina's teenage years, but Howis informs us that at, that at the age of 18, she prayed God would enable her to marry into a serious family. Some two years later, shortly before her 21st birthday, her prayer was answered. On the 3rd of June, 1728, Selina Shirley married Theophilus Hastings, the then 34-year-old 9th Earl of Huntingdon. Theophilus was the eldest of the six children born to the 7th Earl of Huntingdon and his wife, his second wife, Frances. The 7th Earl's first marriage had produced two children, George and Betty. Lady Betty became a role model for Selina. The care of her two half-brothers and four half-sisters had fallen to her in 1704 when her stepmother married her third husband some three years after the seventh earl's death. The earldom passed to her brother George in 1701, but then on his death, at the age of 28, it passed to her eight-year-old brother, half-brother Theophilus in 1704. Lady Betty lived at Ledston Hall in Yorkshire, having been left the estate by her brother George. There she was known as a conscientious member of the Church of England and held in high esteem for her charitable works. However, at that time, she lacked a full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She did warmly accept Selina into the Hastings family, and she encouraged Selina to support good causes. Within months of her marriage, Selina bought Bibles and prayer books for the distribution on the family estates, but she too at that time 
knew nothing of a personal relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was a loyal church attender, but her only hope was that her good works might be sufficient to please the God to whom she had often prayed. In the providence of God, the early years of Selina's married life, though not easy, proved instructive. The instruction came in ways most people would neither welcome nor wish. Yet in the secret purposes and plans of God, they turned out to be for her good, and also for the good of others. They were years during which the young countess faced, first, sorrows, secondly, sickness, and thirdly, an increasing sense of emptiness. The sorrows centred on her parents. Within a year of her marriage, Selina's father died at the age of 52. On the 12th of April, 1729, Washington wrote to inform her that he would not be able to attend the baptism of her first child, Francis, due to ill health and the need to settle a dispute with his estranged wife, Mary. Two days later, he was dead. Following the death of Washington, his wife Mary filed a lawsuit against her daughters Elizabeth and Selina for maintenance from the family estates. Other members of the wider family did something similar. It was a long time before all the legal disputes were resolved. However, in the face of these difficulties, Mary, who did not secure the financial assistance she wanted, added insult to injury by disowning Elizabeth and Selina. Selina's ill health was either caused or aggravated by her pregnancies. Within three and a half years of marriage, she gave birth to four children. Francis was born in 1729, George in 1730, Elizabeth in March 1731, and Ferdinando, I'll get it right in a minute, in January 1732. Shortly after the birth of Ferdinando, Selina began to visit Bath in the hope of a remedy for her physical problems. Bath may have been a fashionable place to which the nobility went for treatment and to recuperate, but for Selina, it was a place where she felt lonely. Many months were spent away from her children and her beloved husband, whom she described as her very life and the one upon whom her soul doted. Her loneliness was exacerbated by an increasing sense of emptiness. Selina, whom Dr. Shane, her doctor, described as having a solid understanding, a sweet temper and an honest heart, found the social activities and the gossip of her aristocratic contemporaries deeply unsatisfying. She also found her recreational activities did not make her happy. No doubt this feeling of unease was made worse by the sadness of losing shortly after birth in June 1735, her fifth child, whom she called Selina. In the plan of God, the way was being prepared for the Countess of Huntingdon to discover those higher and lasting treasures that surpass man's understanding. Her sixth child was also called Selina and was born on the 3rd of December, 1737. And her time throughout 1738 was spent assisting her husband in looking after the family estates as well as socialising.
However, that year brought the news that her beloved sister-in-law, Lady Betty, was ill with breast cancer. They kept in touch by letter, and in late December 1738, she confided to Betty Hastings that consideration must show us the emptiness of all sublunary things without using this life as the way and means to lead us to a better. She also opined she had lived a life so disagreeable to herself. But within months, matters were radically transformed. The instrument God used in the transformation he effected in Selina's life were the gospel, preachers, and the testimony of Christians. The key players in this conversion drama were Bernard Ingham and her sisters-in-law, Margaret, Anne, and Francis. Ingham's hometown was Osset in Yorkshire. It was from there this serious-minded young man went up to Oxford in 1730. The dissolute lifestyle of many students concerned him greatly. He discovered the existence of the Holy Club and spoke up for its members when they were maligned. However, it was not until 1733 that he sought out John Wesley and joined the club. Along with others, Ingham strove to earn God's favour through the religious exercises and endeavours in which he engaged. After ordination in 1735... He sailed for Georgia, America. On board ship, he and the Wesley brothers met some 25 Moravians. Their influence was significant. Ingham came under conviction of sin, yet he still tried to establish his own righteousness. Inevitably, he found no rest, but eventually in deep distress, he looked unto Jesus and called upon him for mercy and instantly obtained it. On his return to England a year later, he met George Whitfield, who emphasised that sinful men and women are unable to please God by endeavouring to live in a respectable and upright manner. Whitfield stressed it is necessary for an individual to be personally regenerated by a gracious and sovereign work of God's Spirit. It was not long before Whitfield noted a change in Ingham, and the two men prayed to God for guidance concerning their future ministry. By 1738, Ingham was back in Osset. On his return, as he sat on Woolly Moor some six miles from the town, the Spirit of the Lord was poured upon him in a particular manner, and there and then he was ordained and commissioned to be a preacher of the gospel and was anointed by the Holy Spirit for the work. Ingham preached wherever he could, it was soon evident that a season of refreshing for the church had come. Many crowded the churches and many began to seek salvation through faith alone in the Saviour who had secured the same for helpless sinners through his life, death and resurrection. It wasn't long before Lady Betty Hastings issued an invitation to Bernard Ingham for him to preach in her private chapel. In Ledston Hall, the Hastings girls were informed, not just of the Moravians and the hymns they sang, but more especially of the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. The message that good works can never merit God's favour and that a sinner's only hope of acceptance with God is through faith in Jesus Christ 
challenge them deeply. In due time, Lady Margaret, Lady Anne and Lady Frances embraced the faith preached by Ingham. Within weeks, Margaret was to write of her newly discovered spiritual joy to Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, who had earlier in that year of 1738 written to a friend of Lady Betty, I would undergo everything to come to the true knowledge of my Saviour. There is evidence to suggest that Selina was not happy with the doctrine of human inability, which was a distinguishing mark of Whitfield's preaching. Notwithstanding this, both she and her husband were introduced to the teaching of Whitfield's friend Ingham when they visited Ledston Hall in the spring of 1739. They also learned from Lady Margaret that since she had known and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, she'd been as happy as an angel. Selina remained far from happy. She knew she was a stranger to the joys her husband's sisters had. She also had a troubled conscience due to her failings and the fears which gripped her heart. She saw and felt herself to be nothing but sin. And she began to recognize that without an inward transformation effected by the Holy Spirit, her destruction was inevitable. She found no relief from her anxiety. Matters grew worse, and her friends, on observing the depth of her despair, thought she had lost her reason and ought to be put away. The Countess was expecting another child and did become seriously ill. But it was not so much her physical as her spiritual health that concerned her. In her anxiety, she found herself thinking over the testimony of Lady Margaret. As she mused, she felt an earnest desire to renounce every other hope and to cast herself wholly upon Christ for life and salvation. This she did. And thus it was that this capable, competent woman who had a tendency to approach tasks with intensity and zeal came to be saved, not so much from a life of degradation as from her own self-righteousness. The reality of her conversion was immediately evident. Her first biographer, Aaron Seymour, records that her understanding was renewed in knowledge, with the result that all offence at the gospel plan of salvation died away. She wrote to her family in Ledston Hall to inform them of her newfound delight and pleasure. She began to study the Bible seriously. This she did with her husband, for whom she reported the scriptures became his whole study. The gossip among the aristocracy was, to quote the Countess of Hartford, the Methodists have had the honour to, to convert my Lord and Lady Huntingdon, both of their doctrines and practices. The Countess even provided a spirited defence of George Whitfield, whom she had not met at that stage, before her old friend Martin Benson, Bishop of Gloucester. He had ordained the young preacher in 1736, but by 1739, faced with the fact that Whitfield would not allow himself to be restricted as to where he could preach, the bishop voiced his deep regret. 
Selina, in response, called upon the bishop to mark her words and to note that on his deathbed, George Whitfield's ordination will be one of the few that he would reflect upon with satisfaction. <laughs> she was proved right. From 1739 until 1791, the year of her death, Selene faced, cha faced challenges that did not just test her faith, they also expanded her understanding. Hers was a vibrant, personal faith. But her correspondence with Charles Wesley reveals that during the early 1740s, she often lacked assurance of her acceptance with God. On the domestic and personal front, she was dogged by ill health for most of her adult life. And in the 1740s, faced the loss of two of her six surviving children, as well as her beloved life partner. In 1743, on the 21st of April, before she was even told of his illness, her ten-year-old son, Ferdinando, died of smallpox whilst away at school in London. At the time, Selina was unwell and staying in Bristol. It grieved her deeply that Ferdinando had died alone, bereft of his mother's presence. Night after night, he was the subject of her dreams, and to make matters worse, during the day her heart was filled with fears for 12-year-old Elizabeth, 6-year-old Selina and 3-year-old Henry. She feared she would lose them. However, a month later she was able to assert, Nothing is too hard for the love and mercy of God. Sure I am that all is wise and best that happens. I trust in his power to keep my heart from rebelling against him. And let us, my dear soul... Submit to the divine will. He knows what is best. As it happened, the children survived. But tragedy struck later the same year. On the 20th of December, the Countess lost her second son, George. He was almost 14 and, like Ferdinando, died of smallpox. Whilst they were alive, Selina prayed earnestly, even with tears, for the salvation of her children. She had grounds to believe her prayers for George were answered. Once again, though, in the face of hard questions and heartfelt sorrow, Selina's faith triumphed. She wrote to Charles Wesley, The cloud would be so dark did I not see my Lord in it. This must need be, heaviness may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Her greatest personal sorrow, as we've indicated, during the 1740s was the loss of her husband. He was not well during 1745 and 1746. It seems he had heart trouble. He was reluctant to seek help, but eventually yielded to the pleas of his wife. However, before he set off for London in search of advice and possible treatment, he had a dream. He dreamt death in the form of a skeleton stood at the end of his bed, then, after a while, untucked the bedclothes at the bottom and crept under them and lay between him and Selina. Two weeks later, in London, on the 13th of October, 1746, Theophilus Hastings had a stroke and died alone in his Downing Street home. Selina was heartbroken. From the human point of view, she hardly knew where to turn. She was 39 years old 
and had the sole responsibility for the four surviving children. Francis was 17, Elizabeth 15, Selina 11, and Henry 6. Her husband, who died intestate, left vast estates for her to supervise. Her personal sorrows were not limited in her life to the 1730s and 1740s. For this remarkable woman was eventually survived by only one of her immediate family, namely her first daughter, Elizabeth. Henry died aged 18 in September 1758. She had prayed earnestly for him. Her longing was that he would by faith embrace the Saviour and serve him as a Christian minister. The latter was not to be, but with regard to the former, she was confident as she confided to Charles Wesley three months later, her dear child's happiness was not, nor is not, transient. She believed Henry enjoyed that inseparable union with God that neither time, place, or frame, or temper alters. On the 12th of May, 1763, she wrote to William Romain, it pleased our dear God and only Saviour to take from me at three quarters after four in the morning my dearest, my altogether lovely child and daughter, Lady Selina Hastings, the desire of my eyes and continual pleasure of my heart. Selina was in her mid-twenties. She endured much suffering, but four days before her death, she was heard to say, Jesus, teach me, Jesus, wash me. Cleanse me and purify me. And on the day before her death, in response to a question from her mother, she declared that she was happy, very happy. And so it was within 24 hours, she entered into the first fruits of her eternal rest, bearing testimony that the greatest joy is to be resigned to God's will and knowing that there is no hope of salvation but in the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. This bereavement was far from easy for the Countess to endure. As Romaine wrote, Although my lady bears this so well, yet she feels it. She's but a woman, and though a gracious one, yet grace does not destroy nature. She's a parent, and at present, incapable of writing. The behaviour and lifestyle of her firstborn, Francis, the 10th Earl of Huntingdon, was a cause of grief to her. He was an intelligent man and of considerable talent. However, as an impressionable youth, he came under the influence of the hardened unbeliever, the Earl of Chesterfield. The evidence indicates that his influence was not good. Francis adopted an unbelieving and immoral lifestyle. The Duchess of Somerset, a long-standing friend of Selina, described Lord Huntington's dislike of religion as an affliction. Certainly it was an affliction to Selina to see her son reject the faith, imbibe the rational tenets of the day, and spurn any notion of divine revelation or the supernatural. Nonetheless, she loved him and prayed for him and witnessed to him, as the concluding words of a letter written in 1780 illustrate. My dear son, I have a faithful friend who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Know that I never, never will. I have tried this promise often 
and he has never failed me yet. You must believe I extremely love you. S.H. Whether Francis ever trusted in Selina's faithful friend, we do not know. But we do know his, this grief afflict, affected the aged and ailing Selina profoundly. Selina also experienced testing times in the church. The Methodists, with whom she associated following her conversion, were a despised people. They were frequently denounced as cracked brain enthusiasts and profane hypocrites. Publications denouncing them were commonplace. The term Methodist was used as an insult, and the followers of Whitfield and, Wes and the Wesley brothers were treated with contempt by members of the aristocracy. But the Countess counted it an honour to be numbered with such men. Three matters relating to the people of God should be mentioned. The first relates to the Moravians, the other two to the Wesley brothers, especially John Wesley. 1740, in 1740, the early, early Methodist movement faced a series of crises. One centred on Philip Mulver, who on his arrival in England in 1739 began to introduce a new teaching amongst those who met together at Fetter Lane, London. Hitherto, the Moravians and the early Methodists had cooperated well, especially with John and Charles Wesley. However, Mulder, a one-time servant to Count Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians, introduced a stillness teaching which contradicted what the Wesleys taught. John and Charles Wesley believe that there are degrees of faith and that those who lack assurance of faith should use the means of grace. Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with the saints, etc. Mulder, though, insisted that all who lack assurance in the inner witness of the Spirit should not use the means of grace. Instead, they should do nothing except be still until God gives them assurance that they have been regenerated and forgiven by him. Bernard Ingham, who owed a great deal to the Moravians, as we've seen, hurried down from Yorkshire to do what he could to effect a reconciliation between the two parties. He even invited the Moravians to Yorkshire to begin a congregation in that county. That led to tensions, not just between professing Christians in Yorkshire, but for the Countess herself. On the one hand, her friendship with the Wesleys continued to flourish. Yet on the other, she was well aware of the family links with Ingham and Lady Margaret Hastings. A permanent break with, between the Moravians and the Methodists came about on the 20th of July, 1740. This is a year after Selina's conversion, when John Wesley led a small group of followers out of the Fetter Lane Society and set up a new headquarters in a former munitions factory known as the Foundry. It was there during the autumn of 1740 that the Earl and Countess worshipped whenever they were in London. Also during the 1740s, doctrinal differences between the Wesley brothers and Whitfield became apparent. The divergence of opinion centred first on the doctrines of election and final perseverance, and secondly on John Wesley's insistence that in this life it is possible for believers to attain perfection. 
it is clear that Whitfield did his utmost to avoid a division. Although in America at the time, in June 1740, he wrote, he sought the help of the London printer, James Hutton. He informed Hutton by letter that he would rather die than see a division between the Wesley brothers and himself. And he pleaded with Hutton to persuade Wesley to avoid disputing with him. With Whitfield, that is. Later the same month, Whitfield wrote to Wesley, urging him not to expose their differences in his preaching. And then in a letter dated the 25th of September, 1740, Whitfield expressed his profound sadness that Wesley seemed to own a doctrine that sinless perfection is attainable in this life. Whitfield was convinced that not one of us can say that indwelling sin is finished and destroyed until we lay aside our bodies at death. He argued it is a fond conceit to cry up perfection and yet cry down the doctrine of final perseverance and that this and many other absurdities Wesley would run into because he would not own election. At first, Selina sided with John Wesley adopting his theological position on both election and perfection. In part, this may be explained by the fact she enjoyed warm, cordial relations with the Wesley brothers. Her decision to side with John Wesley may also have been influenced by her temperament. Selina was not just a capable and competent woman. She was also a determined and decisive person. The challenge not to rest content with anything less than perfection would have appealed to her personality. Certainly, with regard to a pamphlet on Christian perfection published by Wesley in 1741, she opined, the doctrine contained therein I hope to live and die, die by. It is absolutely the most complete thing I know. Within a matter of years, though, Selina came to adopt an altogether different position. At least five factors contributed to the change. First, Despite having wholeheartedly accepted the teaching of John Wesley, she increasingly found it difficult to put into practice. As she strove for and longed to attain perfection or total freedom from sin, she found herself confronted by a greater and greater awareness of her own sinfulness. This depressed her and led her towards a state of despair. Secondly, she found herself questioning her assurance of her acceptance with God. That's not surprising when you consider the first point we've just made. Indeed, at one stage, she even expressed the fear that she was of the number of those that come after the door was shut. Thirdly, the more she sat under the preaching of George Whitfield, she became increasingly aware of the reasonableness of his biblical arguments on the matters in question. Fourthly, she and her husband were involved in a serious incident. The carriage in which they were travelling overturned. They were both injured, the Earl more so than the Countess. The incident gave her a jolt, not just physically, but also emotionally. And she later reported, I was roused and found to my shame and amazement that I was in 
the everlasting arms. And fifthly, she got to know other Christian ministers. On the, 27th, on the 26th of August, 1743, she was introduced to the Welsh preacher Howell Harris. Harris, the son of a Carmarthenshire carpenter, enjoyed warm friendships with both the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield. But it was his evangelistic zeal that made a deep impression upon her. Through her friendship with Harris, she began to visit the Moorfields Tabernacle more regularly, where, before his return to Georgia in the summer of 1744, she often heard Whitfield preach. She also met the elderly and ailing nonconformist Dr. Isaac Watts and the warm and large-hearted minister of an independent church in Northampton, Dr. Philip Doddridge. Her friendship with these men and others contributed to her shift towards that doctrinal position which is sometimes called Calvinism. She came to see that by starting with God and his saving purposes for his people, she could find peace of heart and assurance of his power to keep her to the end. The testimony of Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntington, was that she was saved by grace alone and kept by the God who saved her. Out of thankfulness for who God is and what he gives and does, Selina endeavoured to glorify him in all she did. So now we come to consider, secondly, Selina's works. We have noted on more than one occasion that Selina was a capable and competent lady. But what was it that she did? For what is she to be remembered? Faith Cook, in her excellent biography, provides an accurate and useful summary. With her conversion, Cook says, came a deepening concern for the welfare of the men and women on her estates and a zeal for the salvation of her servants, her acquaintances, her family, and the nobility amongst whom she mingled. A zeal that was to become the passion of her life. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, in comparison, fails to put the emphasis in the right place. Yes, it can be argued she was a woman who, on the death of her husband in 1746, gave herself wholly up to social and religious work. But it is surely not right to say that she made herself the chief medium for introducing Methodism to the upper classes. That was something God did. Her concern was to consecrate all she had to the service of God. And this she did from the earliest days of her Christian life. From 1739 onwards, she knew that in Christ she was a new creation. Although in the early years, as we've seen, she sometimes lacked assurance. And she came to see that that transformation was all of God's doing. And so she wrote to Charles Wesley in 1742, I am crucified unto the world, and the world unto me. All events are alike but the advancement of God's glory in his saints. My life 
has long been his. Sorry, I misread that last part. It should be my little has all been his. And what we now want to do is to explore this little that she devoted to God's service. Let's notice first that her domestic life was gospel-centred. While she never neglected the spiritual well-being of her immediate family, it is also true that she did all she could for the spiritual good of her domestic staff and those in the area around her home. Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, was essentially a woman of drive and action. Her married life began on the estates of Donington Park in Leicestershire. Whenever she had an opportunity, she would read to her staff from a suitable religious book and would exhort them to seek the Saviour. She would visit her estate workers and also the homes of the needy in the surrounding villages and found ways to offer them practical help. She had a particular concern for the miners of Leicestershire and was deeply troubled by the lack of good educational facilities for the children of the poor. She took on the responsibility of a school in Melbourne, three miles south of Donington, and she started schools in Ashby de la Jouche, Markfield and Shepshed. However, these efforts were not always as successful as she would have liked. For example, the school in Markfield only lasted a year, due in part to a lack of parental cooperation. She also found that her evangelistic aims in the schools were somewhat thwarted when the parents were not concerned for the spiritual well-being of their children. Selina was frequently distressed by the total religious ignorance she discovered on every hand. To address such a need, she planned to open her home to the poor and needy once or twice a week so as to feed both their bodies and their souls. But such a plan raised an important question. Should she, a woman, teach the scriptures? Her concern, you see, was to be faithful to God's word in all that she did. The Countess of Huntington laboured much among the unawakened. She would let none pass by of any rank without reminding them of the fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. In 1757, when her son Henry was far from well, she took him to Brighton to see whether sea bathing would help his deteriorating condition. She was met in the street by a woman who said, Oh, madam, you are come. The countess inquired what the woman knew of her, only to be informed that this stranger had seen her in a dream three years earlier, dressed just as she was at that moment. The stranger went on to say she understood from her dream that the lady's arrival in Brighthelmstone, as it was then called, would be the means of much good in that locality. And so it proved to be. In the providential purposes of God, this incident led to a remarkable work in that small seaside town. The stranger, who as it transpired had only a short time to live, proved to be a person whose heart God had prepared to accept the message of his grace. Furthermore, Selina, on hearing of a soldier's wife, who was very poorly after giving birth to twins, did all she could to help the woman. Her help was both practical and spiritual. And the spiritual help she gave benefited more than the dying woman. The soldier's wife pleaded with the countess to teach her from the scriptures. This Selina did. The woman's lodgings were adjacent to the public bakehouse, and as there was a crack in the wall between the two properties, it meant that those waiting their turn to bake bread were able to hear parts of the conversation. <laughs> Interest grew, and soon a, a woman's bedside Bible study came into existence. 
Numbers increased, which delighted the countess. However, one day she was faced with a problem. Tucked away in the far corner of the apartment, apparently hoping not to be unnoticed, was one Joseph Wall, a local blacksmith, noted for his foul mouth and his immoral lifestyle. Selina did not know whether she should ask him to leave as it was a meeting for women, but she chose to ignore him. As she usually did, she prayed with the women and urged them to call upon God for mercy and forgiveness. Joseph Wall came under conviction of sin and was soundly converted. In time, a church was planted in Brighton and the Countess provided the community with one of her many chapels. We shall return to the topic of chapels in a moment. In the meantime, we must turn for her, from her private and domestic life to that of her work amongst the nobility. For secondly, Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, was driven by a passionate concern to reach the aristocracy of her day with the gospel message. As a peeress, she had at that time the legal right to appoint two private chaplains, whose duty it would be to minister to the spiritual needs of her household wherever she might live. In 1748, after his preaching in Chelsea Farm, one of her London's home, homes, had been favourably received by the Earl of Chesterfield, the then former Chief Secretary of State, and Lord Bolingbroke, although neither were converted. Selina appointed George Whitfield as one of her personal chaplains. Chesterfield spoke warmly of Whitfield's unrivalled eloquence and inexhaustible zeal, whilst Bolingbroke called him the most extraordinary man of those times. In appointing him as her chaplain, the Countess took a step that would have a lasting and significant effect on the lives of of many. However, we must track back a little, for the Countess, soon after her conversion in 1739, took steps to bring her acquaintances under the influence of the gospel message. Her task was never easy, partly because the Methodists with whom she identified were despised, not just for their doctrine, but also because they were seen as being those who did not respect their superiors and sought to do away with all distinctions of rank and class. The Duchess of Buckingham, for example, while somewhat reluctantly accepting an invitation in 1741 to accompany the Earl and Countess to a meeting in London addressed by John Wesley, expressed the opinion that it's monstrous, monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. <laughs> Selina, though, was not deterred. After the death of Theophilus and having consulted Howell Harris as to whether she should live as a retired Countess or fill her place, decided to do all that she could to further the cause of Christ. She and her close friends, Countess de Litz, the Marquis of Lothian, and Catherine Edwin, made prayer for the conversion of the Prince of Wales, later George III, a priority. They were convinced that a king sympathetic to the message preached by the leaders of the Evangelical Awakening would be a great benefit for the nation, as well as offer protection for the hated Methodist cause. It was thus with renewed vision and a heart aflame with desire to see the progress of the gospel, that the Countess explored ways of furthering the cause of Christ. In November 1748, on his return from Scotland, her chaplain George Whitfield was called upon to preach twicely, twice weekly to family, friends, members of the nobility and acquaintances whom she invited to her Chelsea Farm home. Throughout 1749 and the following years, she did her utmost to reach the aristocracy and politicians along with actors and writers, with the humbling yet life-transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whitfield, when he spoke, was always eloquent and winsome. He was also fearless, being prepared to speak openly and plainly to the representative sample of the high society 
that attended meetings in the Countess's drawing room. In fact, because the numbers attending were so great, Selina took out a lease on another more centrally conveniently located house. Thus it was that for a while, a property on Park Street adjacent to Hyde Park became a venue for her preaching meetings. George Whitfield knew the help of God as he preached, and although the number converted was not great, the response of some to, of some to the gospel message brought delight to Selina and lasting glory to God. Whitfield wisely commented that she would not know until the day of judgment the extent of God's purposes in bringing her to London at that time. Thirdly, Selina gave tireless support to gospel ministry. And she did this in three ways. First, she identified and encouraged potential and existing faithful ministers. She was conscious God was doing a great work in those days and she expressed the hope that it would be the time when all things should be swallowed up by the enlightening and comforting displays of our glorious Redeemer's kingdom. This conviction drove her to seek ways to promote such a work. Although deeply committed to the Church of England, she was Catholic in the best sense of the term in her outlook. Thus, for example, she asked Philip Doddridge, the dissenting divine of Northampton, to look out for a promising young man whom she could support at his academy. Later, she increased the number she was to support in that establishment. The reason why she did this is not hard to find. There was decay in zeal in the dissenting churches. She believed that the urgent need of the hour was to train men for the all-important task of gospel preaching. The problems in the Church of England were even greater. The moribund church was in desperate need of reform. As many clergy opposed the work of the Methodists, the need of the hour was for men of evangelical persuasion to be ordained. She invited aspiring ministers to her home in Ashby, and when convinced of their gifts and dedication to the gospel of Christ, she would rally support among her friends to campaign for their ordination. If one bishop refused, she would try another. <laughs> she was always on the lookout for gospel men to preach at her home meetings and in the pulpits where she had an increasing influence. She engaged the services of William Remain, a man of Huguenot stock born in Hartlepool, and she made him one of her chaplains. She also encouraged and used men like Martin Madden, and Henry Venn. The latter she was instrumental in helping to a new measure of spiritual understanding. Venn had been influenced by the mystics, as she too had been at one point, but with her judicious advice and counsel, he was brought to have what Whitfield called a clearer knowledge of the everlasting gospel, and to preach Christ crucified as the only foundation for the sinner's hope. She did not like to see division among the leaders of the revival, and although decidedly Calvinistic in her convictions, she did all she could to promote close cooperation between the preachers. By the late 1750s, the early impetus of the awakening was waning. Believing that a spiritual malaise was gripping the nation and that God was dealing with the nation in judgment, she asked that a fortnight of prayer and preaching be held at her Park Street home. John Fletcher, Martin Madden, Thomas Maxfield, William Remain, Henry Venn, Charles Wesley, John Wesley and Whitfield all took part. These, amongst others, were men for whom she prayed earnestly. Her longing was that under God their preaching would prove increasingly effective. It comes as no surprise, therefore, to find that in the summer of 17, 
66, she met with the Wesley brothers and Whitfield to discuss ways of promoting unity amongst the all the branches of the Methodist work. Secondly, she strove to support the training of gospel ministers. We have mentioned the support she gave to Philip Doddridge and men attending his academy in Northampton. We must now make special mention of her college at Trevecca, Wales. This was the most demanding project of her life and one that she took on at the age of 66. The purpose of the college was simple. It was to provide the church with preachers. The need for them grew as the work Selina sponsored and supported expanded. For many years she was faithfully served by men like Harris, Romaine and Whitfield, but their other commitments and their advancing years increasingly took their toll on their ability to itinerate. Moreover, sometimes the Countess was quite unable to find preachers able and willing to undertake the extra responsibilities involved in supplying the preaching stations she had set up. The answer to this ever-pressing need, she believed, was to establish a nursery for preachers. Some, like John Berridge of Everton, Bedfordshire, opposed the plan, but Howell Harris encouraged her. He expressed his willingness to sublet to her on a 25-year lease for an annual rent of 10 guineas, both the rundown farmhouse and land he had recently rented from his brother in Trevecca. By the end of 1764, the Countess began the long process of seeking a suitable tutor, but work to enlarge and adapt the property at Trevecca did not begin in earnest until 1767. She invited John Fletcher of Maidley to serve as the college's first president, a clear indication that she wanted the college to serve all branches of the Methodist work and not just its Calvinistic wing. A Welshman, John Williams, was appointed resident tutor. Despite the fact that for some ten years after its opening in 1768, Trevecca supplied preachers who travelled tirelessly, preaching wherever they went, all did not go well from the start. Williams proved unable to fulfil the task assigned to him. He was replaced in 1770 by Joseph Benson, a friend and colleague of John Wesley. In the summer of 1770, Wesley wrote a very critical letter to the, Crown to the Countess, detail detailing her defects and sins and the matters of dispute between them. It seems that the letter may have been precipitated by a clash between some of Wesley's preachers and students from Trevecca, although this is by no means certain. The letter, though, deeply offended the Countess. If that was not enough, the Minutes controversy also erupted later that year. It eventually resulted in both Benson's and Fletcher's resignations. In fact, the Minutes controversy proved to be a parting of the ways for John Wesley and Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. It also led to a hardening of the rift between the Arminian and Calvinistic wings of the revival. The Minutes controversy arose when Wesley published his Minutes of the 27th Annual Conference held in London in August 1770. At the conference, Wesley chose to air the differences that had long existed in the Methodist movement. In particular, Wesley highlighted a divergence of opinion on the nature of justification by grace through faith alone. Wesley saw justification as an acquittal from all condemnation on account of the merits of Christ's blood. He did not include the forensic imputation of Christ's righteousness to his people. This led Wesley not just to emphasize the need for holiness, 
With that, no one disagreed. But also to speak in such a way that a Christian's works were interpreted as being in some way meritorious. The Calvinists, including the Countess, were deeply troubled by any talk of allowing merit to works. Wesley dismissed their concern as mere hair-splitting and disputes about words. Throughout the 1770s, the labours of Trevecca students were used by God to penetrate areas of the country where little gospel light had shone for many generations. The Countess herself was somewhat astonished by the rapid expansion. She nurtured the students as a mother, her own children. Sometimes students found they incurred her displeasure, especially if they were somewhat extravagant in their tastes, and she was giving sacrificially to support them. She took a deep personal interest in each one and loved them unreservedly. She endowed, she endeavoured to keep in touch with them so as to encourage them in the great work of gospel preaching. Her pen at one stage was, it seems, always in her hand as she wrote letters of encouragement to them. A problem, though, that she increasingly faced was that despite her commitment to the reform of the Church of England, her students were swelling the ranks of the dissenters. This was a problem that John Berridge foresaw, and he had warned her of it. A hope when she had set up the college had been that the more able of the candidates would proceed for ordination, preferably in the Church of England, after completing a course of training at Trevecca. But what she found was the students were increasingly unable to gain ordination in the established church. Thirdly, Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, provided a platform from which faithful ministers could proclaim the gospel. At this point, we want to focus on her chapel building and preaching station program. As we have seen from the outset, she was keen to keep the Methodist movement within the bounds of the Church of England. However, a problem existed. Restrictions were often imposed by the hierarchy of the church. It struck the Countess that a way around this difficulty was to provide buildings in which evangelical men, freed from such restrictions, could preach. She and her friends provided a preaching house for George Whitfield in, Whit in Bristol in 1753. In 1755, again mainly from her own funds, she provided a large chapel in Norwich, primarily for the use of those who wished to hear the preaching of James Wheatley, who had worked for John Wesley from 1742 to 1751. A little later, in 1759, it's reckoned that the Countess sold some Jews to the value of £698 to finance the erection of a chapel in North Street, Brighton. On the occasion of the opening of the Brighton Chapel, farmers and labourers from the Sussex countryside and from Cookfield and Wivelsfield pleaded with her to consider building another chapel further inland. Before the end of 1761, Oat Hall near Wivelsfield was open and in use. And so the work went on. But the more chapels the Countess opened and supported, the more the administration grew. In the 1760s, she single-handedly undertook the task of ensuring that the pulpits were supplied with gospel preachers. Up until 1770, including chapels in Bath and Tunbridge Wells, the number of chapels established by her, largely at her own expense, numbered little over half a dozen. However, that was soon to change the demand for chapels burgeoned. Being f and that demand was felt in places as far apart as Ewer Street, London, 
in Brecon, in Devizes, and Dover, in Hull, in Woolwich, in Lincolnshire, Worcestershire, Westminster, Dublin, and Gravesend. By 1775, Selina reported, Our work is spreading beyond all bounds, the bounds of all hope. Faith Cook does not exaggerate when she states that chapels wishing to come under her auspices multiplied up and down the country. Music and singing were an integral part and an important aspect of worship associated with the Methodist revival. This was certainly the case in the Countess's chapels. Hymn books bearing the words collected by her ladyship on the title page were to be found in her chapels from 1765 onwards. The first edition contained 231 hymns. The 1780 edition, 304. These dumpy, leather-bound devotional aids, measuring some three or four inches square, formed a unifying factor and a badge of identification in all her churches, both then and far beyond her lifespan. A decisive and defining moment came in 1779. The preceding year had seen the closure of a dissenting meeting house, Northampton Chapel, after the incumbent of Clerkenwell had taken exception to two ordained clergymen preaching in his parish, parish without a license from the bishop, and had also insisted on his right to preach in the chapel whenever he pleased and to receive the income from the letting of seats and other incidentals. The Countess was alarmed at this development and decided to make the chapel, which had a congregation of at least 3,000, one of her private chapels. She determined to purchase the adjoining property and to connect it to the chapel, which was renamed Sparfields Chapel. In this way, she sought to comply with the regulation that a peeress's chapel must be part of her private residence. William Sellen, the offended incumbent, was invited to the opening on the 28th of March, 1779, but he declined, being more interested in defending both the rights of the minister of a parish and the parish system itself. The countess prepared a defence based upon the rights of a countess, rights she had exercised from at least 1748 when she appointed George Whitfield as her personal chaplain. John Glynn, a leading barrister, advised that Ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical law such as it now stands is against you at some points, points which would not be insurmountable were our bishops differently minded. <laughs> as it happened, the case went against her, partly on the grounds that preaching to several thousand local residents went beyond the duties of a peeress's chaplain who was expected in her chapel to do no more than conduct worship for the family and invited guests. As a result... Thomas Howis, her chaplain since 1744, was forbidden on the 26th of May 1780 to preach in Spa Fields. He was also ordered to pay the costs. The verdict against Howis set a precedent. It looked as though it would be but a matter of time before all the Countess's preachers were silenced by antagonistic clergymen who resented the existence of her chapels in their parishes. Selina was forced to do what she never wanted to do. Hitherto she had been intensely loyal to the Church of England, but now so as to protect the preachers and the preaching of the gospel of God's grace in its unadulterated biblical glory, she found herself obliged to protect all her chapels under the Toleration Act of 1689. She did not rush into action, but she saw that the point had been reached 
when a separation from the Anglican Church had become inevitable. As she struggled with the emotional pain of the situation, she wrote to one of her former students, John Hawksworth, I am to be cast out of the church for what I have been doing all these 40 years, speaking and living for Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, I have not one care relative to this event, but to be found faithful to God and man through all. You see, at heart, Selina was never a dissenter. She insisted that in her chapels the liturgy of the Church of England was used. But now she needed to know that at least some of her preachers would support her. The trouble was many of those who had been willing to work with the Countess, men like Venn, Berridge and Howis, now felt they would be compromised if they preached in her chapels. They felt that a new day was dawning for the established church. And they didn't want to compromise that new work. As a result, the Countess felt isolated and at times disillusioned. But once registered under the Toleration Act, she would be in a position to ordain suitable preachers without needing to seek the permission of a bishop. On the 12th of January, 1782, when Sparfield's chapel seceded, the hitherto informal connection officially became the Countess of Huntington's connection. In 1788, she was responsible for some 116 preaching places, but in 1790, the plan of association she prepared for the uniting and perpetuating of the connection listed only 64 chapels. A year later, at the great age of 83, a mere two months short of her 84th birthday, she was heard to utter to her doctor, my work is done. I have nothing to do but to go to my heavenly father. Later that day, her doctor heard her say, I shall go to my father this night. Can he forget to be gracious? Is there any end to his loving kindness? She knew no end to his loving kindness. But it was not until the next day, the 17th of June, 1791, that she entered into a Saviour's immediate presence. Her work indeed was done. And what a work it was. And what a life. A life and work that present Christians in every succeeding generation with a challenge. So we close with a few comments about Selena's legacy. What is Selena's legacy to the Church of Jesus Christ? We want to suggest three practical areas for consideration. First, Selina, Countess of Huntington's usefulness in the service of Christ was a direct consequence of her clear grasp of the Christian gospel. She wasn't afraid of doctrine. She was God-centered. She knew what God had done for sinners in Christ. She knew the biblical gospel she knew that there is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And she knew that salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what drove her on. People must hear of the Saviour. 
And she knew that there was, nor could there ever be, any merit, even in the best of her works. Secondly, Selina's usefulness was directly related to her clear grasp of a Christian's responsibilities. She knew that Christians are called to live for God. They are, as she put it, to fill their place. And this she endeavoured to do. And she frequently found, even though sometimes very weary, that God, with a fresh call, lifts me up and gives me a new strength to labour for him. She dreaded slack hands in the vineyard. Whitfield discovered her hands were never slack. He knew that she was all in a flame for Jesus. She knew that Christians must seek to do good to all. Her life is an example of that desire shown increasingly by evangelicals at that time to improve the social lot of men and women. She knew that Christians should do all in their power to support faithful gospel ministry. Her deep burning concern was to see the progress of the kingdom of God. And she knew that it's the responsibility of Christians to persevere to the very end. She had a strong belief in the ultimate purpose of God for the success of the gospel. And it was this that nerved her, to discount trials, opposition and criticism, and to hold on with steadfast faith. And thirdly, Selena's usefulness was the direct consequence of her clear grasp of a Christian's privileges. The Countess of Huntington never lost sight of what God has done for sinners in Christ, but more especially she knew God's care. He was her faithful friend. She knew God's word and the comfort and encouragement it always brings. She knew God's promises, that they're always sure and certain. And she knew God's purpose. The cause of Christ shall undoubtedly triumph and prosper. She knew that a time is coming when all things shall be swallowed up by the enlightening and comforting displays of our glorious Redeemer's kingdom. And that drove her on. Anything ecclesiastical? It's a microphone. And uh, is it a comment or a question? Or a question. question. Uh, you mentioned, George, that Selena was concerned as to whether a woman should be uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, you never actually resolved that in the course of your address. What, what conclusion did she arrive at on that point? The right one, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> I think she sought the help of John Wesley on that question. And I don't know the help that John Wesley actually gave her. But I'm quite convinced in my own mind from my little reading of Selina that I've done that um, she was quite clear that all of us are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everybody wherever we are, but it's men who are called to be leaders of churches. Okay, that was fine. <laughs> so she wouldn't preach to a, a mixed congregation of men and women you would talk children and talk privately and personally. Right. Any other comments or questions? Please don't be afraid uh, of the authority of the speaker. He is open to questions. <laughs> I want to hear Jonathan. 
I'm sorry about this. We just need to record what is being asked. The word awakening came through quite a lot. How far are we away from an awakening? Anyone hear the question? Most of us know the answer as well. How far away from an awakening are we? Give the answer, then, you know it. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, quite a long way, I would have thought. No, no, no. God will surprise us. Yes. If only his people would bow and pray. We, when you look at the history of revivals, is it not the case that so many of those revivals have begun with one or two people who have been deeply concerned at the moribund state of the church and even of their own hearts and they have together prayed and independently prayed and just prayed for an outpouring of God's spirit. If my people humble themselves, that's what we must do. We're not doing it. I mean, I'm not waiting on the Lord as I should. There's no question about that. My spiritual life is, is in tatters. It's, it's, you know, it, it leaves so much to be desired. But we never know when God's going to move. So you can't answer that question and say we're two days, two weeks, or two hours, or 200 years from it. What I do know is that God did a great work in our country in the 16th century as a result of the Reformation. I know that he did a great work in our country in the 17th century through the Puritans and people like Oliver Cromwell and uh, other great preachers. I mean, he was the politician, but there are other great preachers like Sibs and others. And we also know that, as we've been seeing, through the 18th century, he did a great work through people like Selina, Countess of Huntingdon and, and the Wesleys and the Whitfields of this world. There was a revival in 1859 in England uh, and other parts of the United Kingdom, in New York as well. There was revival in Wales at the turn of the uh, 19th, 20th century, beginning of the century. Revival in the Hebrides in the um, 50s. But we ain't seen anything in Newcastle since 1859. And we desperately need it. It's the only hope. fascinated to hear how Selina appointed George Whitfield as her chaplain and we know that he spent a lot of time in the United States and I'm just interested to know whether she took an interest in that work and in what way she would have supported it Did well, she take an interest in the work in the USA? Well she actually, I didn't tell you this but she actually inherited everything that he was doing it was all left to him in his will uh, it was all left to her in his will she took a very keen interest in what uh, George Whitfield was doing wherever he was, because she knew how God was using him. She chose him as her chaplain for the simple reason. I mean, she knew he'd be coming and going across the Atlantic. Was it some 13 times he travelled across the Atlantic? I think he did 13 visits or something like that to, um, to Georgia. Uh, um, and uh, she knew that he would obviously be coming and going. It was a political move, an astute move on her part to have him as her chaplain because she could use him wherever she wanted in her houses if uh, his preaching itineraries uh, permitted it. And, and she knew the gifts that God had given to that man. Uh, and she knew that he would be able in a winsome and eloquent way to speak to the aristocracy of her day. Uh, and, of course, they were, that was something that they loved. They wanted people of oratory and eloquence. They didn't want just sort of uh, um, rough and ready sort of farmers and all the rest um, uh, preaching. 
But uh, yes, she took a keen interest in his um, American work. Uh, she did a lot to support it. And as I say, she inherited it all. In the end, I, I hadn't got time to tell you everything. I told you too much. I was 70 minutes, so I was over time. <laughs> Any other questions anyone wants to? But there's a lady over here, John. Was she known to write any hymns at all? Did she write any hymns? I don't know the answer to that question. She certainly collected hymns together, so that I do know. But whether she wrote any, I don't know. She had a lot of fine hymn writers around her, didn't she? Of course she did. Only oh, one to live in those days. A copy like Philip Doddridge, which sadly, Isaac sadly, Isaac Watson. And sadly, those hymns more rarely sung than they ought to be. Anyway, I mustn't ride hobby horses. All the time. <laughs> Just behind you there, uh, John. George, I, I, I'm not sure I, I'm, I know the, the answer to this, but w was I right I'm picking up from what you said that Selena might have been a post-millennialist? Is that the terminology? Did was, that, first of all, the question, you have to understand, first of all, before you would answer it, was she possibly a post-millennialist? I'm not ask you, I ask George. Does that, does that matter? No, I, I don't think it does matter. Um, uh, what with due respect, mean? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I, I, she, uh, I don't think she would have been a pre-millennialist, anyway. It's quite... Whether she was an amillennialist or postmillennialist, I don't know. Just for the sake of being in my... Yes, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> I, was, I was flannelling for time. <laughs> Could you explain the difference? Um, well, yes. Uh, not 70 minutes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, well, basically speaking, a premillennialist is a person who will believe that Christ will come, there'll be a thousand-year reign. Uh, um, well, sorry, he'll take his own to himself, uh, uh, um, the amillennialist doesn't take, um, oh, come on, help me, help me, Brian. Uh, <laughs> my mind is really not on the right track at present. It's the gospel age. We it's must record age. this answer. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get this right, you see. Uh, um, right, so the premillennialist believes that the, the faithful are taken before right. the millennial reign on earth. That's right. The um, amillennialist, which is a misnomer really, yes. believes that there's no uh, sort of millennium after the current age, but that the current, but the current gospel age is the millennium. That's right. And the post-millennialist believes that the millennium is a sort of consummation of the gospel age, I think, after which Christ returns. I'm a bit shaky on number three, George. Yes, post-millennium is quite difficult to understand. Yes, yes. I don't think I've Any ever understood it. That's probably why. Aren't they as well? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure this is actually that helpful <laughs> <laughs> at the present time as he tries to avoid it. Just a, just, just, just a sec. Just a sec. Just a second. Please, can, can we have the discipline of the microphone, please? There's another millennialist, a pan-millennialist, who believes it all will pan out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for the question, Nick. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Mr. Jim. The key thing here, the key th to be serious to your question, Humphrey, forget about post-millennialism or not. The key thing here was that the Countess knew, and this I think is key for us, the Countess knew that God has promised blessings for his people. 
And the countess knew that Jesus Christ shall reign and that all eyes will see him reigning. And she longed to see more and more of his reign evidenced on earth, although she obviously knew that it's in uh, glory after the day of judgment that the fullness of his reign is seen. That's the key thing. She, she, she knew that Jesus Christ would, has got great things in store for his people. Now, you see, I think part of our problem is, is we haven't got the confidence in God that we ought to have. We're not hoping as much as we should for what he will yet do. We've got to be an expectant people. She was an expectant person. She expected him to do great things, and he did great things. That's, he, was, he was her faithful friend who never let her down. That's what she told Francis, her son. Well, thank you for the question Sorry. and for the answers from George and the audience, which certainly has identified the lecturers for the next autumn lectures <laughs> in the year 2003. There's a hand up somewhere. Yes, over here, John, and then there's one in the corner there. Uh, she obviously used her social position uh, very effectively. But from everything you've said, she must also have deployed enormous financial resources. Was she also a sort of business genius, or did the estate go to rack and ruin? I, I mean, I, it, it really sounds quite extraordinary, the output. The output was the... phenomenal. She spent, and she was spent, and she spent up for Christ. She inherited, obviously, now obviously those things had to be handed on to Francis, uh, when he became Earl, when um, Theophilus died in 1746, and she um, went to Ashby and lived there. But the little that she had was spent and spent and spent for the Saviour. I mean, Trevecca, the costs of Trevecca were nearly half of her annual income at one point. And it wasn't easy at all for her. And she was giving away. That's why she was concerned when these students, you know, fancied having two pairs of shoes instead of just one, or whatever it was. She was concerned about their extravagance because she knew what she was giving up and she knew it had got to be spread around uh, and that there were all these churches and chapels and preaching stations that needed to be supported. She knew she'd got to support ministers. So, but, I mean, when she died, she, she virtually left nothing because she'd spent for the Saviour. Now, which of us will do that? Question over here, John. Uh, I believe uh, Selina was responsible for... Um sending, encouraging John Wesley to come to Newcastle in, in 1742. Um, I just wonder whether you'd like to expand on that a bit. Well, I think you've said all that needs to be said, Peter. I mean, she, she encouraged that, and he came. She encouraged Whitfield to come as well to Newcastle. I mean, one of her chapels was in Morpeth, the one said. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you heard all that, anyway. I'm, I'm, not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure there's anything more I can say, Mr. Chairman. I, I, that is a point. She did encourage it. She, she had this heart for men. And she was concerned, as we said, uh, um, about the minors. That was used in the generic sense, so it includes the ladies. Uh, um, she, uh, she, 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 she was concerned for the minors of Leicestershire. She was also concerned for the colliers and minors up here. That's why she sent Wesley and Whitfield up to this part of the world. They must hear the gospel. And it was, I mean, when Wesley came, people were converted. It was wonderful what happened when Whitfield came. Men and women were converted. Wonderful. Oh, that we saw that happening today. I, I, I would just like to speak up for Humphrey. I think his question about the millennium is brilliant. I think it's the most important question. Two-thirds of the scriptures are about prophecy. Uh, and I, I get mixed up, a millennial, pre-millennium. All I knew is that there's an enormous amount of scriptural evidence that Christ is returning very, very soon 
to take over his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Alan. Now, there's a hand somewhere else, uh, perhaps <coughs> lost forever, but so, any, any other questions? 